Well, good. Well, uh, again, my name is Daniel Riki. I'm at Hope Church. We're in like the Jersey Village area. Uh, we planted a little over six years ago, and uh, it's been a, a great joy. Um, I grew up in actually the Clear Lake area. Uh, God saved me young. Um, went to, but I kind of plateaued through college. God really transformed me in college um, through. Uh, various uh, expositional preachers and, and healthy churches there, and uh, from, then went on staff at a, a church uh, in Houston, then spent some time at Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C. doing an internship there before being a part of uh, Hope Church when we planted uh, in 2012. And um, a, a little bit about our church, like our goal as we set out was that we wanted to be an authentic representation of biblical Christianity. So we wanted, what we meant by that is like, we just want to take the scripture and say, let that drive what we do. Let it drive our, our polity and our church governance. Let it uh, apply to our missions. Let it apply to spiritual gifts and spiritual warfare and all these other uh, components, uh, including uh, areas that it might push up against our Western culture that we have kind of grown up and lived and breathed in. We just wanted to say, God, just help us to be faithful to all of it. Like, we just want to try to walk this out as best we can. And so in that, we've tried to structure our churches as, by the Holy Spirit's power and by the word as best we can. Um, in every area that we're, we're trying to build out, including spiritual warfare and uh, deliverance. And so um, that's really what I want to focus on this morning. This is the third part um, of, a, of a series that we've been doing over the last three months uh, on spiritual warfare. You know, as, as one of our elders, we have, uh, we've all at our church ministered in contexts that have uh, more or less minimized or ignored spiritual warfare. And we've all seen... Um, uh, the, the, the challenges that can come about with that, as especially as it pertains to discipleship and freedom and transformation. And we've also now seen the great joy and fruit of trying to really press in to a biblical view of spiritual warfare at Hope Church over the last six years. We've seen amazing uh, impact in discipleship and people being freed from strongholds and people being able to stay free uh, and being able to be freed from really, really um, dark places. Uh, and so um, I'm just really encouraged to get to talk about uh, this with you guys. Again, I'll just kind of reemphasize. I know there could be some fears that you're feeling. And, um, you know, I just want to be a blessing to you wherever you are on the spectrum and on your journey in pressing into the area of spiritual warfare. I presume the Lord's doing something in each of your hearts for you to be here uh, for this or because you're being made to by Chad. Uh, <laughs> but either way, I just want to encourage you, like, if you're skeptical of me, like, let the scriptures uh, convince you. You know, and if you're, you're scared, okay, if I press into spiritual warfare, it's going to become like overrun our church and be the only focus. I just want to encourage you from a pastor that's really trying to press into this, that it hasn't overrun our church. It's been a blessing. I think it's been balanced and, and biblical. Uh, you know, you might fear getting attacked if you start pressing into this. That's a very common thing that we've heard expressed. I just want to encourage you again that you guys are in ministry. You're already getting attacked. So I'm just trying to help you guys be equipped to push back in a way maybe that you haven't been able to. And then also there's the, the very, very, very the most common thing is just a fear of what other people are going to think. If you start talking about demons, start talking about driving away demons, start talking about people being uh, that the root cause of some of their issues might be demonic, uh, you can get some weird looks in, in our city and in our culture. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you with Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant mm-hmm. of Christ. And so my challenge for us from for this week and for uh, the other uh, sessions that we've talked through is to really just let the scriptures speak for themselves and, and try, to ha- let it, try to press the reset button on any cultural things and just say, what is the scripture really teaching? And uh, to, to ask God to give you a really honest assessment of that. And so I encourage you to study these notes. I can send some additional resources to you after this if there's other areas you really want to dive deeper into. But I'd really encourage you to be uh, Bereans about this and really um, let the word convince you. So... Um, I've started off uh, the last two with these same examples that I'm going to start off with again, just to remind us that these are these are issues that we're we're all going to be running into in our local churches. And so I, I want you to think about how you'd minister to each of these situations. So how would you minister to the six-year-old son or daughter or nephew of someone in your church who's dealing with uncontrollable rage, suicidal thoughts, uh, effeminate mannerisms that started when they were three years old? Um, where the parents are coming to you saying, hey, there's a ceramic cross on the wall that get, it's too tall for this little guy to reach in his room and it's getting turned upside down uh, in the middle of the night. He's waking up having night terrors. Uh, he's telling you there's monsters in his room. When you try to pray over him, he freaks out. Like, what do you do when you have a family bring uh, a little boy to you in that situation? You know, what about the godly man in your, in your church who's, uh, especially you can tell, really going after it. He's in the word, he's in prayer, he's in accountability, he's in discipleship, but he's still struggling with the pornography stronghold. 
He's got covenant eyes on all of his devices. He's doing everything you as a pastor are shepherding him towards, and he just cannot beat it. And he's like, man, I'm doing everything, and I just feel like I'm hitting a wall. You don't sense that he's being complacent. You don't sense that he's just minimizing his sin, but he just really can't break free. What do you uh, do for that brother if he's in your discipleship group or your home group? You know, what about the stay-at-home mom who is one of your just most on-fire local missionaries, essentially? She's on mission in the neighborhood. She's ministering to moms. She's ministering to her kids and her kids' friends. She's doing discipleship and Bible studies and evangelizing at the park. Like, she's just killing it. And yet she's constantly being uh, barraged with crazy, undiagnosed physical issues. And and it's getting to the point where she, the doctors don't know what's going on, but it's impacting her ministry. And she's having to pull back, and she's not able to do all that she's feeling called and led to do. What do you do if uh, that woman's husband comes into your office and says, help me, help me know how to help my wife. The doctors don't know what to do. Could there be something else? going on or what about you as a faithful christian as you're seeking to plant a church or disciple or make or be faithful in your local congregation and you're trying to live missionally and and reach out and it feels like every time you're pressing into what god has for you things just explode at home or you're dealing with nightmares every night or your kids are walking through things that just don't make sense it doesn't add up you know uh, what do you do when you hit that situation that just doesn't seem to add up but it seems like it's coming against uh, the ministry that you're trying to do that God's put in your heart. You know, as we get to these points and we've exhausted all the avenues that our typical evangelical conservative uh, world has to offer, where we, and where we've also gone to doctors and therapists and been reading the Bible more, we're in yet another accountability group, then what? You know, like, are we simply just to tell people, hey, this is it. This is what, you're, this is what you've got to uh, go through uh, in this broken world. Now, certainly, there is some truth to that. We want to be believers who are willing to suffer. We see in Scripture that believers are going to suffer. That's a, that's a promise. But uh, what if some of this isn't that? What if some of this is us misdiagnosing the root cause and presuming it's just something uh, surface level or something that a doctor or a therapist can deal with or that reading the Bible more can deal with or an accountability group can deal with when really the root cause is demonic? Because if, if we're treating the wrong root cause, it's a simply, it, it can be similar to having a headache and taking Tylenol when really you have a brain tumor, right? Like you can take Tylenol all you want, but it's not going to solve the tumor. You need surgery. You need to deal uh, with it in that way. And so that's why I'm here today. Uh, I, I think that's why Chad asked me to be a part of that, uh, the part of this with you guys is uh, we're passionate about seeing believers and churches equipped to walk in this area um, and, and against the enemy so that we can see the kingdom advance, so that we can see lives transformed and freed uh, from things that otherwise uh, they would stay stuck in. So the first class that we did uh, was really just an introduction to this idea, the biblical reality of spiritual warfare, just trying to take our Western glasses off and see uh, scripture uh, for what it was. And then last week, we, I mean, last month, we talked about uh, the demonic realm and tried to build a theology of different types of demonic spirits we see in scripture and how to potentially start pressing into that. And then today, I want to get even deeper into the practical. Uh, I want to talk about deliverance. I want to talk about praying against the enemy. And I want to talk about seven common areas uh, that you can face spiritual warfare and how to kind of press back against that. So I'm aiming to teach for about 30, 40 minutes and then spend the rest of our time in Q&A. So if you would, please save your questions. Uh, jot them down as we're going. And I, I hopefully we'll be able to answer everything today. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. I want to go over the three <coughs> anchor passages that we've started with uh, the last few times and just get us our our baseline. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So right away, we see that, that the Apostle Paul is, is saying that our root issue, the, the primary thing we're battling against is not flesh and blood, but it's against the enemy. Uh, he's, uh, he's, so he's saying yeah, that, that it's not that there aren't flesh and blood dynamics to things, but that ultimately our root issue is spiritual warfare in, in these situations that he's fighting in. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, next. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9, if you would. So Paul says, for this is why I wrote that you might te- that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. 
So we see in this passage that the idea that Satan has schemes, he has devices, he has designs, he is a strategic enemy going after Christians to try to thwart what God is doing in the world. And Paul says that he's not unaware of these schemes. And I don't know about you guys, but I think that it's very common for me to feel uh, like I can't say what the Apostle Paul says, which is that I'm not unaware of the devil's schemes. And so I think wherever we see that, where the, the, the believers in Scripture are walking in something that I can't affirm myself, I need to press in and ask the Holy Spirit to change me and give, bring me to that place. Uh, and then the, the, the last passage to start off, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. First Thessalonians 2, 17. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul is talking about how he longed to come see them, and then he just drops these four words, but Satan hindered us, and then he keeps elaborating on how much he loves them. I can't imagine uh, most of us or most of our pastors are, are, uh, stepping up on stage on Sunday and saying, hey, we we're going to do this building campaign, but Satan hindered us, so now we're going to do this. Hey, we we're going to start these small groups, but then Satan hindered us, so we're just going to keep on moving without getting blasted with emails like, bro, what are you talking about? What do you mean by that? And I think that shows us just how far we are culturally from where they were in the sense that Paul could just drop that bomb about Satan hindered us, and they don't even need an unpacking. They know what he means by that, and they're okay contextually with that. Their worldview has a compartment to that. You know, if you look in the New Testament, every single author references Satan and demons. Not in every single book, but every single author references Satan or demons. And since all of these things are true in Scripture, that they had this worldview for the supernatural, for uh, the enemy, I want to talk for, about what that means for us practically. Okay, So what does it mean to walk in a healthy biblical view of spiritual warfare uh, and uh, for us as Christians? And how do we go from just a theological knowledge uh, to practically waging war against the enemy in our everyday lives? So I wanna, uh, what I want to do is really quickly, I'm just going to blaze through a summary of last month. Uh, to get us a little bit up to speed for those that may not have been here, I would encourage you to grab the audio. Uh, you can get that from Chad or from Micah. Um, but I want to give a quick summary of what we talked about last month, and then I want to dive into some practical stuff about how to fight. So uh, I think some of this is in your notes. So as we think about cosmic level spirits, I want to talk about the, the two types of uh, overarching uh, demonic uh, spirits that we see in Scripture. The first kind of uh, level of spirit would be we'd call them cosmic level spirits. Um, this is essentially territorial spirits, religious spirits, and institutional spirits. These are the high-level things like you see in Daniel 10 that are over a region, over a, an organization, over um, uh, a, a particular city or nation or uh, religion even, over Islam or Hinduism or whatever it would be. And they are the, the higher-level spirits that we basically don't directly communicate with or command to do anything. We don't engage them directly. Uh, this is... Um, we see no evidence of people directly engaging them in scripture. We've seen some anecdotal uh, bad things that happen when people presumptively go in uh, to commanding territory, I mean, cosmic level or territorial spirits uh, things. And we see some hints like in Jude where uh, the Mike, uh, Archangel Michael won't even directly command a rebuke against Satan, who we think is the highest of cosmic level spirits, the highest level spirit, uh, demonic spirit that there is. Uh, he says, the Lord rebuke you. So even another angel who's presumably at the same level opposed to Satan doesn't directly command Satan to do something. He says, the Lord rebuke you. So we would encourage you not to directly talk to cosmic level spirits or command them to do anything, but to pray to God and pray blessings, ask for the Lord to push back. So over the city of Houston or over your neighborhood or whatever it would be, if, you, if you're sensing that there's a, a demonic spirit kind of trying to do a bunch of stuff there that's over that place, we would encourage you to pray, God, please weaken the spirit in Humble. Please weaken the spirit over uh, Clear Creek Community Church. Whatever that would be, God, please push this back rather than saying, in the name of Jesus, I command you to, to leave big spirit over this whole place. Okay? So that's cosmic level. And that, again is not going to be the primary stuff you're going to be ministering against, I would presume, and I would encourage you uh, not to. So ground level, this is uh, what we use to describe demons that are just uh, roaming freely, demons that are attached to buildings or objects, or demons that are attached to people uh, that we see in Scripture. Uh, and that's what we're going to largely be able to deal with as believers and what we're going to be able to fight against. So uh, I want to talk about the concept of demonic attachment. So um, the word demonitsumai in the Greek is often uh, uh, translated demon-possessed uh, demon in our English translations. I don't think that's a very good translation. A lot of scholars are, are coming away from that translation and using a transliteration of demonitsumai, demonized. 
uh, which, because daemon itzamai means someone has a demon. It implies influence or attachment, not complete ownership and complete control. Uh, we could point to Mark 5, where there's the Gadarean demoniac, who's uh, probably a 12 out of 10 level of demonization, level of demonitzamai. And even he, when he sees Jesus from a distance, ran and dove at Jesus' feet before the demons start going nuts. Uh, because presumably he saw Jesus, knew his, that was his, his ticket, and he had enough self-ability left to go. And if those demons had complete and 100% control over him, they knew as soon as you get to him, they knew who Jesus was. So presumably it wouldn't make sense they'd run to Jesus. It makes sense they'd run away to avoid getting sent into the pigs and uh, going into the ocean. So uh, as far as the idea of uh, possession, we would encourage you to use the word demonization. And we think that uh, a good met- metaphor for that is the idea of ticks on a dog. Uh, so the ticks don't own the dog, they don't possess the dog in the sense they completely control the dog, but they are attached to the dog. They can really weaken the dog, they can hurt the dog, they can cause the dog to be more susceptible to, to sinning and doing bad things, uh, to getting in the neighbor's yard, digging up their plants, doing biting his, uh, his owner. And just because the dog changes owners doesn't necessarily mean the ticks are gone. The new owner needs to take the ticks uh, off the dog and, and free the dog of those ticks. And we see the similar idea with demonization. Sometimes at salvation, God in his kindness will free people of demonic stuff, and sometimes he doesn't. He wants the body of Christ to move uh, in and to help free uh, people from demonization. So I'm hinting at that, that we believe that demons uh, can be attached to anybody, uh, believer, non-believer. It's just a level of the strength of the demonization. It's not a, a matter of whether the demons can be attached and influencing. It's just how strong that influence is. Uh, if you look at that theologically, I think you start with that idea of Damon Itzabai, not implying complete ownership, but implying influence or attachment, uh, like a ticks on a dog. Uh, biblically, I think it's easier to argue that the, the people coming to Jesus for deliverance, for freedom from demons, for healing, for all those things, if you wanted to argue whether they had faith or not, uh, they weren't Christians in the sense that we are post-resurrection, whereas Jesus hadn't died and risen yet. But we see in Hebrews 11 and elsewhere that in Old Testament believers were saved by faith in God, which and faith in, in the coming Messiah, which they certainly, I think you could argue, exhibited the moment that they set foot on the dirt path to go to Jesus to get healing. And so if our theology says, as soon as you trust in Christ, any demons you may have had attached to you just slide off like you're covered in jello, then why did those people who set foot toward Jesus not they even get to Jesus before and need deliverance? Uh, because they, I, I would argue that the moment they set foot to Jesus, I trust you to free me, uh, then they would have just been delivered at that point. And Jesus would have never actually had to do deliverance uh, in a lot of these instances. And so I think that uh, biblically and theologically, it's easier to argue that there were uh, opportunities for believers to be demonized. And then historically, if you look at the early church documents, including Hippolytus's apostolic tradition writings from 215 AD, the early church membership process included deliverance. They, uh, there's a lot of wild stuff in there, but the point that I'm, I'm communicating, I think that we can extract is that even in the earliest centuries, they had this understanding that believers could have demonic influence attached to them. And so they would do like counseling them to turn from their sins and walk through kind of a catechism, and then they would do a deliverance, and then they would baptize them. So that was the old uh, membership process, and that's actually part of our membership process at Hope, is that uh, we will walk through uh, a ministry time where we see if there's anything demonic um, attached to anybody on their way into joining our church uh, before baptism if they've not been baptized. Uh, and in light of that kind of idea of wanting to see people freed from anything the demonic is doing in their lives before they transition uh, into membership. So four ways we see in scripture that someone can be demonized. Someone can have a demon attached to them. Um, the first is through habitual or grievous sin. You can see that in Ephesians 4, the idea, don't let the sun go down in your anger unless you give the devil a foothold. The idea is unrepentant anger gives the devil a foothold. It's the Greek word tapas, where we get topography. It gives the idea of the enemy having ground in your life, authority to be there. Uh, and so where we walk in unrepentant sin, we can theoretically open a door for the enemy to attach a demon, to perpetuate that anger, and see what else that he can do while he's there. Uh, the second um, is through curses. We see... Uh, that curses seem to be the opposite of a blessing in Scripture. Um, Sam Storms would define a curse this way. To curse is to call down or send forth from a supernatural source calamity, trouble, chronic harm, or some other form of adversity upon another person or object. You see this in Judges 9 where uh, Jotham, I believe it is, pronounces a curse and then an evil spirit actually does the, the work of making that curse happen. I would encourage you to study that in your own time. It's a fascinating passage uh, in Judges 9. So where we see the idea of a demon being the one who accomplishes uh, a curse happening. So in, uh, in our context, if it, it could be that uh, you're, you're, somebody's on a, uh, interacting with a witch doctor or a medicine man or someone from another faith, and they pronounce a curse in the name of that 
false uh, god, that demon, essentially. Uh, and if it lands, it can land with demonization. Uh, and that would be how it plays out. Uh, the third way someone can be uh, demonized is through involvement with the occult. This is an uh, issue of allegiance where we're saying, uh, essentially, we're giving our allegiance to Satan in that sense because there's only two kingdoms in conflict, as we've talked about uh, in other months. Uh, and so if you're not giving honor and allegiance to Jesus, you're inevitably giving allegiance to Satan. He's like, great, I'm going to attach demons to you and do uh, whatever it is I want because you're giving me uh, your allegiance. And then the fourth way uh, we see people have demonization is through generational spirits. So this is any of those first three ways, but passed down from the generation past, from parents or grandparents. Uh, and we see uh, this very anecdotally, very commonly, and the closest thing scripturally that we can um, point to is the situation in Mark 9 where Jesus has the little boy who's uh, fallen into the, the flames in the water uh, and is having seizures, and Jesus asks his dad, how long has he been like this? And the dad says, since he was little. And in the Greek, there's uh, it's amb- ambiguity of whether it means from birth or from very little childhood, something uh, in that regard. But um, we would argue that if he's that little, he's, he wasn't walking in unrepentant sin, he wasn't involved with the occult directly. Could have been a curse, but it also very well could have been a generational spirit. And then you see the principle of the impact generations can have on the future generations in Scripture. Uh, Exodus 20, you know, the sin can, is going to be punished on the generations going forward. Um, but we know from uh, Ezekiel 18 that what that doesn't mean is that you can go to hell for your parents' sin. We're all going to directly relate to God on, on our own salvation and, and, and that. But we do see that there can be economic, social, relational consequences to sin that go generationally, and we think there can also be a a demonic spiritual component uh, that can happen. So if you look at those four ways, unrepentant sin or habitual sin, involvement with other faiths than Christianity, curses, and generational stuff, who doesn't have red flags in their story? And we found that this is such a common thing. So I just want to encourage this. There's no stigma if someone's demonized. If there's demons attached uh, to us or to our people, uh, that is not like a stigma that we've done something wrong. In a lot of cases, it means that you've been doing something right, seeking to advance the kingdom, and the enemy is throwing everything that they can at you. So we just want to encourage uh, to re- remove any stigma uh, that could be there from demonization. So as we talk about demonization, I want to differentiate between demonization and an assignment. Uh, and then from there, I think we'll talk about, uh, we'll get into deliverance and some things like that. So with demonization, what I'm talking about is where demons are attached to somebody, uh, where there's authority to be there, either from a generational thing or from unrepentant sin or from involvement with the occult or from a curse, where there needs to sometimes be repentance of those issues and the demons need to be driven away. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about demonization. An assignment is what we kind of would call what we see happen in Job 1 and 2, where the enemy has permission, for whatever reason, in God's sovereignty to attack somebody externally, we would say. Where in that situation, Job is, the enemy's given free reign up to a certain point to just attack Job in that way. And ultimately, God allowed that for a purpose to bring glory to his name. And so for us, we we can differentiate between there's demonization, where there's a demon that's attached to us, that has authority to be there due to some uh, component of our sin or something that we're walking in. And then there can be an assignment, which is just basically an external attack uh, on us that the Lord is allowing for whatever reason in his sovereignty. So we often get the question, okay, well, how do I know the difference? Uh, between an attack and uh, assignment or demonization. So the first question I would encourage you to process through is through those four ways. Like, am I walking on repentant sin? Have I been involved with the occult? Could there be some generational stuff? Could I have, have had a, a conflict with uh, somebody who could have tried to put a curse on me? If the answer is no, you then kind of also thinking, have I been seeking to advance the kingdom? Am I really going after it? Could this be uh, just the enemy trying to push back against me? Uh, and so that can kind of direct you which direction uh, it could most likely be. So I'll just kind of give you some quick examples of what I do when I perceive demonic attack in my own life. Uh, So the first thing I do is I'll pray to God, ask him to lift it, and I'll start commanding any ground-level spirits that might be attacking me to leave. So I'll say, in the name of Jesus, I command any ground-level spirits to mess with me, get away. In the name of Jesus, go. In the name of Jesus, go. And I'll pray uh, and ask the Lord, God, please push back this attack. I feel like I'm being attacked. Would you push it back? If I'm not feeling relief, shortly thereafter, I'm texting my friends and, and guys that I'm doing life with. I'm texting the elders, saying, hey, I feel like I'm really being attacked in this area or this area. Could you cover me? Could you pray for me? Uh, so w- things that will kind of trigger me to, to do that. If I start having irrational anxiety out of nowhere uh, that doesn't seem to make sense, that it's just overpowering, I'm like praying against those anxious thoughts, and then new ones come in. I just feel like I'm just under this blanket uh, that I can't get out from. That's, get, that's triggering me. Like, okay, this could be a demonic attack. Or uh, if things are, I'm just kind of, we're minding our own business, and all of a sudden just stuff starts going nuts at our house. Our kids just start 
going crazy um, in uncharacteristic ways or everything starts breaking in a, in a, in a weird, suspicious way, things like that will, where just things just radically shift with no real reason. And sometimes that could be demonic attack and will trigger me to start praying. Uh, community is extremely important and walking in spiritual warfare. It's important to uh, walk out uh, in your local church with those that you trust who can pray over you and encourage you that prayer is always safe. Praying to God, praying to Jesus is always uh, safe and uh, encouraged as you're thinking through uh, demonic attack. If you haven't had a ministry prayer time, a deliverance time, and you feel like you might need one, then would encourage you also in these instances where you start sensing demonic attack that maybe there could be some uh, something deeper than would encourage you to pursue reaching out for that. And also, if you or the people you're discipling in have been walking in unrepentant sin or have a very clear open door for demonic influence or attachment, would encourage you to really press into that. And first of all, slamming those doors shut and then pursuing freedom uh, from what could be there. So I gave you these uh, last time. Just uh, sorry for how fast I'm going through. I'm trying to get through all of last time's uh, real summarized so we can dive in uh, today. So I appreciate y'all's patience with me. Um, The four ways, uh, four levels of prayer against demonic attack I gave you guys Uh, Last month, level one is just praying to God, asking for protection. God, would you protect us from any attack? Level two would be speaking a blessing. So in the name of Jesus, may we be protected from any attack. May we be blessed with peace. May we be blessed with your power, Lord, um, over us. Uh, Level three would be commanding any ground-level demons to leave. So in the name of Jesus, I command any ground-level spirits here to leave. And in the name of Jesus, leave. In the name of Jesus, leave. So that's level three. And then level four would be commanding all spirits around to leave, which we would discourage doing, which would be including cosmic level spirits in your uh, commands. And we would encourage you not to do that. We would encourage you just to instead do level one and two to pray against cosmic. Lord, please protect us from these cosmic level spirits. May may they be broken. May they be weakened in Jesus' name, uh, as opposed to directly going against them. So um, as far as praying against ground level spirits, I think I've included it. If it wasn't in these notes, it was in the last one, and we could get them to you. But uh, kind of how we kind of walk through a space to clear it out where there's uh, people that are seeing weird stuff or having weird experiences in their homes, how to clear those out. So we, it's very simply, you walk through the rooms and say, in the name of Jesus, I command any ground little spirits in this room or attach any objects here, leave. In the name of Jesus, leave. In the name of Jesus, leave. And do that until you sense it leave or for a length of time where you're, you're confident that it's left and then you move to the next uh, part of the space. Um, and then in that, though, we want to just kind of continue to give a blanket encouragement that we do have authority in Christ to go against the enemy, but also we want to be very sensitive to the Holy Spirit that we're only going into battles that we feel called to, that we feel like God is especially pointing us into, and we're not being presumptuous to go around uh, and just start talking to demons about things uh, that we're not called uh, to press into. So now let me talk about deliverance. So now we're kind of getting into some of the newer content for um, today. Um, So first of all, what I mean by deliverance is essentially commanding demons to leave people like Jesus and believers did in Scripture. So like where you see Jesus or the apostles or the new believers in Acts uh, driving away demons, saying, in the name of Jesus, leave. That's what we're talking about when we talk about deliverance. Um, and so I want to walk through uh, a document. I think I put this in your notes. Yeah, I did. Um, on uh, Basically, we've put together kind of seven components that have to do with deliverance that we see extracted from the life of Jesus. Um, they're not all present in every encounter Jesus has with a demon, but I think it does give us a pretty good... Um, idea of the types of things that would go into a deliverance time. So, number one, Jesus receives the request. You see that happen in Luke uh, 9, where they said, Teacher, I beg you to come look at my son, for he's my only child, and behold, the Spirit seizes him, and etc., etc. Okay, so Jesus receives a request. Uh, number two, demons manifest in some way. In Mark 9, uh, they brought the boy to him. When the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So the demons show themselves in some way, whether it's verbally speaking through someone or whether it's through the the symptoms that they're causing in the person. Uh, And then Jesus directly speaks to the demon and commands silence. We see that in Luke 4 where he says, be silent and come out of him. Uh, Other times Jesus asks questions of the person's history. I referenced this from Mark 9 where they brought the boy to him and Jesus asked the dad, how long has this been going on? Tell me about the situation. Uh, And then number five, Jesus determines uh, determines the demons that are present. So he tries to identify what spirits are there at times. So in Luke 8, he says, what's your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to commend them to depart into the abyss. And then number six, Jesus commands the demons to leave and never return. So he says, in Mark 9, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then number seven, Jesus reiterates that deliverance is from the Lord. Uh, The man uh, from whom the demons had gone, Luke 8, uh, begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away 
proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And I think that's a good reminder that ultimately we're doing deliverance when we're doing deliverance for the glory of God, and we're doing it by his power, and it's not by our awesomeness, and it's not for our uh, credit or glory. And we're, we're, we're doing this because we love people, and we want God's name to be glorified in their lives and in the, the, the lives of those around them. Um, So those are kind of the principles. Those seven principles make up what we do at Hope Church, the way that we've tried to minister to people in the area of deliverance with the demonic. We call, um, I've referenced this, for everybody that joins our church, we walk through a ministry time with them. Uh, And we also get lots of requests from other pastors and members of other churches in our city and out of our city, out of all over the the country, uh, to minister to people uh, in the area where they feel like they've got demonization. They feel like they're being uh, messed with by the demonic, and so we're, we're very honored to get to do that for our people and for also the greater body around the city and the country. And so what we do in a ministry time is more than just deliverance. Deliverance is a, is a, is a large part of it, but it's more holistic because as I um, have mentioned throughout, we're not, we don't view dealing with demons as a silver bullet solution to every situation. Now it can be the primary deal in some situations where everything else in the flesh and the world is being fought against really faithfully and the demonic is the only really the thing left. But it can also just be a very small fraction where somebody's really, their flesh needs to be rewired. They need to have their mind renewed. They're still walking in patterns that they need to repent of. Uh, they're still holding on to things that uh, the enemy is actually able to come more because of their, their flesh issues or the influences of the world around them. So we're not viewing this as a silver bullet. And that goes into even how we structure our ministry time. So uh, these are generally done ladies with ladies, men with men. And uh, generally we have teams of two or three that have been extensively trained by me or uh, there's a lady who's one of the wives of one of our elders who is extremely gifted in this area who uh, I've I've trained who then trains all of our ladies teams. And uh, they go through a six to 12 month training process where they have to pass a theological exam with 100% score. uh, Going through all the stuff we've talked about over the last three months, they have to be able to nail it. So this is our just lay leaders in our church. Then they get to start observing uh, ministry times happen, and gradually we do a gradual release model model where we give them components to to get the lead out in until they're eventually leading it without us while we're watching, and then eventually leading without us even there. So that's what we've been doing since 2012, and we've now raised up uh, probably a couple dozen people who are equipped to do these. And so I actually do a very small percentage of the ministry times and deliverance at our church because our people are doing most of it. And so they're ministering to the people who are joining our church, getting to know them at a deep level, feel very loved and known and cared for, that their stories are heard, that they're getting uh, warred for, freed from some stuff sometimes, and just having blessings prayed over them. So it's been a really powerful thing uh, for our our unity of our church as well as our unity around the city as we're able to minister uh, to other churches. So when they actually get into a ministry time situation, so like there's a guy who will come and me and two other brothers will be sitting down with them on a Thursday night, uh, we'll usually be there for two to three hours with him. We'll start off just by introducing ourselves, getting to know him. If we don't already know each other, a lot of times we do, if there's somebody who's joining our church. And then we'll walk, they'll have listened to a two and a half hour audio on spiritual warfare, very similar to what I've been doing here at HCPN. And they'll, we'll talk through, dialogue through any questions they have, any spirit, theological questions, anything about deliverance, anything they're wondering about. And we'll kind of walk through that. From there, we'll hear their story at like a really deep level, 30 to 45 minutes, getting to hear their, their family of origin background, their conversion, uh, the fruit they've seen in their lives, and then the struggles that they've seen in their lives. We'll look at those four areas that someone can be demonized, and we'll kind of use that as our lens to look at their life uh, through. So we'll look for areas where they've walked in underpendent sin or are currently even sometimes walking in, uh, in strongholds. We'll look at their family background and their parents and anything that they've also seen in themselves that they saw in their parents. We'll look at any um, mission trips or time with other faiths that might have opened them up uh, with some uh, demonic influence. And so we'll get a, a working theory of what we might see there. Then we'll go and explore and do deliverance if there's any demons there. If there's any demons attached to the person, we'll walk them through repentance as needed, and then we'll drive the demons away. And then we spend an extended time praying over them. All the team members will have been strategically taking notes the whole time on ways they can most strategically pray into their life. So a lot of times blessings, we think of the opposite of curses, so the opposite of what the enemy would maybe be doing. And so we're taking notes. If they've struggled really with fear, we're praying for boldness. We're praying for rest and trust in the sovereignty of God. We're praying blessings over that, delivering any prophetic words of encouragement that the Lord brings to mind, and just really loving them at a deep level. And then we'll debrief and talk through uh, counsel for next steps. Uh, you know, maybe if there's an area they're susceptible, we're giving them coaching, we're recommending maybe some counseling that they need to follow up, maybe some uh, inner healing stuff or uh, going through um, healing from childhood wounds. There's all sorts of components. Or it can be just simply, hey, you ought to connect with this guy in our church. He's walked through something like this. Let's get you connected. Uh, and so that's um, what we try to do. And so that is something that, that we have happened probably multiple times a week 
across our church on Monday and Thursday nights. People are doing those um, across our body for people who are about to join our church and for others from around our city. And again, does deliverance solve all our issues? Absolutely not. You know, we actually have a questionnaire for external ministry times where we really just ask them about their discipleship relationships because we found that if somebody's not coming in pretty surrendered to Jesus and not really uh, ready to, to let go of anything they have, they're not in discipleship relationship with their church, they're not in a healthy church, then sometimes deliverance needs to happen like way down the road. Like, and we'll, we'll regularly be like, hey, we will pray with you, we, we will, but we need you to do this. We need you to get involved in the church you're at or we need you to start coming to our church if you're not going to any church or go somewhere and get into some discipleship or hey, we think you need to fast for a few months on this. It seems like you're maybe still walking in this issue that you're wanting maybe a silver bullet solution that we can't give you. Um, and so we try to be really cognizant of that and wise, but also really loving. We're not doing that really in a callous way. We're trying to really walk with them uh, on that. Um, but some of the fruit that we've seen has been unbelievable. I mean, so you think about it, if, if there's this many potential open doors with the four ways someone can be demonized through involvement with the occult or sin, uh, unrepentant sin, curses, generational stuff, how many people in our churches could be struggling with stuff that they could be freed of? And we're, now we have a church where everybody has gotten that knocked out on the way in. And so we've seen a greater level of unity, maturity, um, deeper discipleship, uh, more willingness to, to, to receive the word and to be faithful uh, to just going after it. We've seen um, also some really cool protections from the Lord. We've discovered people um, who were um, essentially, I'm just going to shoot really straight with you guys. We've had people who trying to join our church who were in the occult sent to try to in infiltrate our church. And we picked it up because the demons weren't leaving when we were doing their uh, ministry time. And then they acknowledged and eventually admitted it. And we just kind of said, please don't come anymore and went from there. So we've had some really powerful protections by the Lord. And we've also had opportunities to really know how to love people at a different level than if they had just been able to say, God, man, Christ response, tell us what the gospel is and, and join our church. And so we've seen just great fruit uh, and we've seen really surrendered hearts as people are coming in, being discipled to be transparent about their struggles and also being uh, trained that they're going to be loved really deeply and not they're not going to be rejected. They're going to be encouraged with the gospel and they're going to get to see the power of Jesus. And so uh, we've been really encouraged uh, by that and we're really excited to see how God will hopefully help us to be a part of equipping other churches um, to walk in that in a healthy way because so much of what is out there a lot of times is not um, not as focused on what does the scriptures teach and kind of taking that and driving it and, and uh, it can be more experiential and so we've tried to really let the scriptures drive uh, what we do and we're hopeful that God will continue to keep us really uh, clarify anywhere we're not lined up with scripture and it can give us even more wisdom as we go so I want to hit now seven areas that are the most common ways uh, I think or seven of the most uh, distinct ways that you would want to deal with spiritual warfare and just give you some real practical advice on how we would encourage you to do that uh, so the first is through your own personal life. So um, I would encourage you, um, essentially prayer is going to be the biggest thing here. So praying um, against attack in your life, um, get going through um, praying over your the ministry that you have, praying over your family, praying over your home, um, clearing out your home or office or, or church building. And, and what I mean by that is saying in the name of Jesus, I command any ground level spirits here and do that. Um, regularly if you feel like there's demonic stuff coming against you guys or um, doing that for an extended period to try to clear out a space if it's never been uh, prayed over. Um, but praying against uh, ways that you see the enemy coming against you uh, regularly. If you struggle with fear or anger or anxiety, whatever it would be, uh, asking the Lord to reveal those or bring those up and to then just be targeting. God, push back whatever demonic uh, is trying to capitalize on these uh, struggles with my flesh. Uh, push back on anything that I'm seeing. Uh, coming against me in this way, um, or if you're feeling like you're seeing areas of the enemy just trying to tempt you, maybe you're not walking in it, but you're you're always having to battle in a certain way, and maybe you haven't been praying against the enemy. You've just been praying, Lord, make me more holy, make my flesh better, uh, to able to fight this. You know, push away my flesh, which is a great prayer, but maybe you just need to add the, the demonic component. Lord, please push back any demonic way they're coming against this area too. Uh, number two is also linked, but your prayer life. Um, Ephesians six sixteen to eighteen says, in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And so in here we see it seems two the two primary areas in spiritual warfare are the word and prayer, the sword of the spirit uh, and praying at all times. And so if those things, if our time in the word and our time in prayer um, are the, the best weapon that we have in spiritual warfare, then can you guess what the enemy is probably going to try to come against? 
probably going to try to come and get your time with the Lord in the Word and in prayer, trying to make you prayerless, trying to make your time in the Word restricted or um, edged out or overly analytical or overly emotional, just trying to get us off in some way, trying to, to come after our time with the Lord. Um, and so I just want to encourage us that spending deep time with Jesus in his Word and in prayer and in worship is spiritual warfare. It's not the only component of spiritual warfare, but it is a big part. And so that's like uh, the baseline, right? Like that's the base level defense that we all have to be walking in. Um, you know, and so one liberating truth in all this, if you're going to get overwhelmed, like, man, there's so much to this, like I feel um, inadequate or I don't even know where to start, like, just want to encourage you that just by spending regular time in the Word and in prayer, uh, you are slicing through a great deal of what the enemy is wanting to do in your life, and you're really on your way to being uh, in, in a really healthy place in spiritual warfare if you're doing that. Um, would also encourage you to press in if you're, if you're not doing, uh, if your prayer is mostly just communicating directly to God, but not actually listening for God to, to give you impressions, to speak back to you, would encourage you to really press into that area of listening prayer. Uh, that can be a powerful component um, of our time with the Lord and in fighting against the enemy. So as we think about the third area would be our family, okay? Um, so as uh, parents or husbands or uh, wives over your, your kids or over your spouse or um, your grandkids, things like that, um, you would have, we would think that you have some sort of positional authority where your prayers are somewhat more powerful over those that are under your authority. I think that's the idea of even people coming to the elders to receive prayer. There's just something about that covering that the elders over churches have over their members, over fathers, blessing their kids, and, and so forth. So would encourage you to, to really focus on using that positional authority to pray blessings and protection over your spouse, over your children, over your grandkids. Um, so for my own uh, walk with, with my wife and my uh, daughters, um, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking, praying, asking God to give me insight into how to pray for my kids, how to pray for my wife, look at ways I see the enemy going after them, ways I see that they're susceptible. I'm even making journaling, noting uh, those things, and, and trying to strategically pray regularly for my wife, pray for my kids, and my second-born struggling with fear, my oldest uh, is struggling with anger, you know, whatever it would be, and really just trying to pray against that uh, for my kids, asking God to not just... Uh, to not, for me to not just rely on my own insight into that, but also ask the Lord to give me even deeper insight in some areas that I might not even uh, see on the surface. And then I think also just it's so powerful just to have another category uh, to explore to de determine the root cause of marriage conflict or uh, some struggle your kid is having. Um, because a lot of times the root cause is demonic, and if all we're looking at is flesh and world and not the enemy, then sometimes we're, we're, our, we're fighting a marriage conflict that we're dealing with with our spouse in a way that we're, we're trying to give Advil to a, a brain tumor, right? We're, if we were fighting against the enemy, uh, it could be see freedom. And again, not all of it is that, but where that is the issue, if we don't have a category for it, we're going to be really discouraged. And same with our kids. So just having that category to explore the root cause. So as you think about your kids in general, the fourth area, um, we often get questions like, how do I disciple my kids and process this with my kids? Um, anthropologists say that kids have their worldview shaped largely by their seventh year um, and so it's really important if you've got kids under that age to really try to disciple them with the spiritual warfare worldview, that the enemy is at work, that we do need to fight against the enemy, that we want to be allegiance to Jesus, not to Satan, and we want to uh, work accordingly. And if we've got kids older than that, then they're in the same boat probably we are as a Westerner, and we just want to try to unravel some of the worldview that they may have picked up um, before uh, that time. I want to encourage groom them to think flesh and spirit, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the world, flesh, and the devil is all uh, playing against our uh, issues that we face. Um, we also never want to communicate fear to our kids. We want to um, encourage wise ministry under the direction of the Holy Spirit, fearless ministry, because we know we're serving the one who's sovereign over all things, and we're going against fallen angels. So we serve the God of the universe. At the same time, we want to have a healthy respect for we need to fight faithfully and wisely and not be susceptible. Um, teaching them to pray early, it can be as simple as teaching them, Jesus, help me, I'm scared when they feel scared. Or to teach them, in the name of Jesus, leave whenever they feel like they're seeing uh, demonic stuff or dealing with that. Um, teaching them how to handle ground-level spirits. You know, um, even if they're not saved, we see evidence in Matthew 7 where non-believers can drive out demons through the name of Jesus. And so even more so, uh, children, uh, young children of believers um, even if they're not believers, we think that, that, that them saying the name of Jesus lead could have um, that effect. So um, what we do at the Riki House, we talk openly about this, and this is a normal thing um, in our day-to-day -day life as kids. We pray over them. Um, if we feel like there's demonic stuff messing with them, we'll command stuff to leave in their presence. The name of Jesus, get away from my daughter. The name of Jesus, you know, any spirits here? Um, we also believe them when they tell us they see stuff or they're having demonic nightmares or things like that. We have, um, ha I think so often in our culture, kids will come and say, hey, there's a monster in my, under my bed. There probably actually is a demon under their bed, guys. Like I, that is in our experience. Like a lot of the time, this is not your kids just making stuff up. 
Uh, a lot of times kids haven't been desensitized to the spiritual warfare worldview, and they're more, they're more uh, able to sense and see uh, stuff. So I would encourage you to not just automatically assume your kids are making stuff up. They might be some of the time, but if you would default is to say, okay, maybe there is. Lord, is there something here? Is there something I need to pray against? And that way we're not desensitizing our kids unintentionally to not believe that the spiritual warfare uh, is legit. And then when we see the enemy going after our kids in certain ways, um, go after it, pray against it, ask the Lord to push it back uh, and have that category. Fifth, evangelism. Uh, I want to encourage us to pray into 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which says, in their case, the God of this world, so Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So if this is true, if, he, if Satan, one of his primary things is just to try to blind the eyes of unbelievers from seeing the glory of Jesus, then uh, that should affect how we approach evangelism. We need to be praying for unblinded eyes when we're sharing the gospel. We need to pray for God to push back the enemy's influence. Um, it's not only about being able to articulate the gospel. It absolutely is. You know, Romans 1.16, the gospel is what brings salvation. They need, they need the gospel, but they also need unblinded eyes to see and hear the gospel. And so would encourage us to not just uh, to be able to verbalize the gospel, but be able to pray for God to uh, push back the potentially the bird that would steal the seed, right, from the parable of the soil. soil. Push back whatever the enemy might be done. Um, and also don't be surprised if the enemy attacks in a lot of subtle or uh, diverse ways when you're trying to evangelize. So sometimes it's just to keep us from even doing it, make us fearful of it, make us not do it. But sometimes when we're trying to do it, they'll really come against us. And oftentimes we just write things off, you know, um, uh, where we're, um, you know, trying to meet with somebody to share the gospel with them and they just keep flaking on us or they keep, we keep missing each other. We thought it was this Chipotle, it was this Chipotle, we didn't get to get together, whatever it would be. Or right when you're about to have a, the new uh, Hindu family over from around the corner, your kids get really sick and you have to cancel on them and you don't get to connect, right? Like those types of things, we definitely just write off. But if you start seeing that when you're trying to evangelize or trying to disciple and that happens, it can alert you that there's more, more going on. So the solution for us in this is to charge in when we deal with this, not to retreat back. Because the God we serve, Luke 11 says, it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We don't fear because Jesus has overcome the enemy. He's stronger than the enemy. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so practically, I would encourage you to pray ahead of time when there's evangelism opportunities coming up and pray regularly that the Lord would push back any attacks you don't even know are gonna come to try to restrict evangelism that you might be about to walk into that you don't even realize at the beginning of the day. So praying, having that as a category. Relatedly, discipleship relationships. So uh, strategically praying over the men and women that you're discipling and pouring into, your home group, your small group, those that you're doing one-on-one stuff with. Um, be aware that sometimes um, their issues that we're trying to disciple them into freedom from are not solely because they don't have enough self-control or discipline or they're not reading the Bible enough. Sometimes it is that. But sometimes it can be demonic stuff going on, and so we don't want to be pushing people and, and pressing into people um, where and, and beating them up in some sense, right, where potentially there's a demonic component that's really making it harder for them. So just having that category. Um, do encourage you, just as we do with our families, praying blessings over them, praying uh, for God to give you insight into struggles that, that the people you're discipling might have that might be even underneath the surface that you wouldn't be as aware of from uh, just casual interactions with them. Um, sometimes it might benefit to have them go through a deliverance ministry time, um, depending on the situation, especially if they've never had one, especially if they're coming out of um, a season of unrepented sin, or maybe they've come off the mission field and they've encountered a lot of uh, potential uh, where curses could have land, landed. And just like with evangelism, don't write off the potential things the enemy might do just to disrupt your discipleship, you know, keeping you from being able to get together, um, things like that. I've seen situations where I start to realize that after the fact, man, I should have just been praying more about this. We're like, there's a guy who's been struggling. We've been walking together. And then all of a sudden, we just kind of drift apart because of some logistical things that kind of come. And all of a sudden, this guy's really in a ditch because it's been a month since we've hung out, not because we haven't pursued it, just because potentially the enemy has just kind of made us distracted or, or caused some uh, conflict in scheduling, things like that. So just don't, um, don't discount what the enemy might do, even in subtle ways that we would tend to write off. And then seventh, through our church life. Of spiritual warfare. So don't hesitate to reach out to the elders of your church, the pastors in your church, the disciplers that you're walking with, your friends and ministry partners. Um, when you're to pray against spiritual attack, when you feel like you're under spiritual attack, um, we're such an individualistic culture in America, and we try to just grit our teeth and go through things on our own. I want to encourage you not to do that. 
Be quick to text your friends and other fellow ministers or fellow HCPN guys that you're journeying with and say, God, I'm feeling like I'm getting attacked in the area of fear or anger or my marriage. I feel like is we're going after it. We're trying to love each other well, but we just keep having issues. Can you please be praying against whatever the enemy could be doing? I encourage you uh, to do that. Um, for me, what that looks like, again, is, you know, I'll pray against when I start sensing that there could be some demonic opposition. I'll pray against it. I'll ask the Lord for any... Um, uh, impressions from his spirit that, of the ways that they could be coming at it. I'm texting uh, guys that I trust and I'm journeying with. I'm texting the elders of our church. God, hey, I'm feeling this area that I'm getting uh, hit hard. Would you please pray over me? Would you please pray blessings over me? Um, again, seeing areas that could kind of get your radar going, sudden emotional swings that just seem to not make sense, that you, can, you don't feel like you can come out of. Um, deep depression out of nowhere, intense irrational anxiety um, that is hitting you. Um, sometimes sudden physical issues or intense pain that doesn't seem to have a cause that makes sense. Those things can be alerts that there could be some demonic stuff trying to mess with you and should encourage you to start reaching out for prayer uh, to people. And then also look for ways the enemy might be trying to isolate you or those you're discipling from biblical community. You know, um, one of the, by far, I say by far, one of the most common tactics I see in our, in our church context and in other church contexts of spiritual warfare is if the enemy can just get somebody away from the local church for long enough, then it's just a matter of time. It's not if, it's when the enemy's going to have them in a ditch and they're going to have them um, off track. And, uh, you know, you think about, it says resist the devil. You know, he's like a lion seeking whom he can devour, right? And if you think about on um, uh, what is it, National Geographic, when the lions are chasing the pack of gazelles, what do they do? They try to get one gazelle to go off from the pack and then all the lions turn on the gazelle. And I, unfortunately, have seen that happen so many times in the church. And so, um, you know, it's interesting, anecdotally, in any instance we've had of church discipline, we've had to remove somebody from the church for unrepentant sin. Um, anytime somebody's gotten into a really dark place into unrepentant sin um, that maybe hasn't gotten all the way to church discipline but has been really dark, when we look back at their situation, we realize, oh, you know what? They did stop coming to home group for like two months right before we started finding out about this. So what if we had pounced on that in week three that we saw them skip home group instead of uh, impressing like, man, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Is there anything we can support you with? And so we've just seen this, that if somebody starts drifting away from, from the local church community, it's often the enemy's attempt to get them. It's either, sometimes it's just that they're going through really hard things and they're just overwhelmed and they need, they need our support as, as a church. Um, sometimes it's that just they've had a dramatic schedule change and, and they just need to help you know, be coached on how to kind of reprioritize things. But oftentimes it's because they've started walking in some kind of sin issue and they're, they're, they're naturally being drawn away um, from the local church community and accountability and all those things. And so um, encourage you to, when you start see people start pulling away from the gatherings of your local church, you see them start pulling away from time in the word and in prayer, or if you find yourself in that situation, encourage them into some godly counsel, go after, pursue the lost sheep, um, and per, or if it's in your own case, get back in uh, to the flow of the local church because we don't want to be those that the enemy can devour uh, and get away from the rest of the pack. Well, guys, thanks so much. Um